Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 5. If you are new here, uh, it, is, it is my ambition, and I hope it's the Lord's, uh, but it's my ambition to preach or teach through every book of the Bible in, um, in, in my lifetime. So uh, the Psalms is one of those ones that's a real challenge, and I have kind of hit or miss done Psalms, maybe 30 Psalms over the last 25 years. And so, so what I'm, I do is when I'm in between different uh, series, book series that I do, um, I pick up on some Psalms. And so just so happens I decided I'm going to do Psalms 1 through 7. That's where we are. We're in Psalm 5 right now. And uh, so we'll be doing five this week, hopefully six, and then seven. And then we're going to go into the book of Revelation. And I've never preached through the book of Revelation, so uh, we'll see how that goes. But I've taught through it many times. Um, and so, yeah, it should be fun. Just to give you an idea where we're heading. One of the difficulties that people have with the truth of a good God who is sovereign over all of life is that he seems to be doing so very little to destroy evil. Evil men and women, I say that, evil humans, continue to commit terrible crimes. And especially when that crime is brought against you, it often feels like God is indifferent. Those who have no fear of God have not been held accountable. The present world is not yet a just world. Not saying that God's not just or that he will not bring justice in all things, but it's not. And God's people, whom he has said that he loves, shed his blood for, often are ridiculed and slandered for no good reason. The next three psalms, 5, 6, and 7, really deal with the problem of evil. They're not philosophical. They're not systematic theologies on evil. They are the struggles of one man who happens to be the king of Israel. And he wants to help his subjects, his people, continue to believe the promises of peace and joy in the face of evil. That's what's going on. You see, Psalm 1 lays out the expectation that the godly should flourish and the wicked should perish. And Psalm 2 makes clear that the Lord has appointed David as his representative king on the earth. Therefore, if you were David, you would have a very high expectation that God would conquer all of your enemies as you rule over Israel in righteousness. Only that's not the way it's working out. 
Evil people are opposing David. And the Lord has not removed these men. I don't want to tip my hand too much to the next two sermons. But they go from bad to worse. You don't really understand the Psalms until you understand that the struggles that David experiences are not, okay, here's the struggle, done, got it taken care of, move on, things are good. It is wave after wave after wave. Now, why should you care about David's struggle? I mean, you didn't come in here today and say, man, I just want to make sure David's all right. But you have to remember that David is God's appointed king. Now, just on a very quick level, if God can't be faithful to his king, do you think he can be faithful to you? That on one level, you should say, man, I hope he sure is faithful to David. But on another level, David is a representative, is a foreshadow to us of our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the victory that God gives to his king is the victory that he gives to all of the subjects in his kingdom. So we should really, 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 really want David to be overcoming of his enemies because as David is overcoming his enemies or as we would say as Christ is overcoming his enemies we get the recipients of that we're the recipients we're the ones who are blessed by his victory his victory means your victory his loss means your loss so when you read this psalm don't just read it like David is just another man it's like, you know, these are, the, these are the prayers of Justin Spearman as he struggles with the situations in his life. No, he, this is your king. The one who was put by God to pour out blessing on his people. <clears throat> Jesus right now, right now, as I stand here, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. All of his enemies are being placed under his feet because of what he did at the cross. And so the question that we have, why does evil still seem so powerful? Why do we not yet see every enemy put under his feet? David is deeply disturbed by this. He's disturbed by the men who oppose him. He is distraught. And I would argue, maybe it's not as clear in today's, but by the time we get through Psalm 6 and Psalm 7, it is clear that David is fighting against despair. But he's also clinging in faith. To the promises of God. So let's read Psalm 5 together. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. 
Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as with a shield. The one who should be basking in victories instead is groaning. He is so confused and frustrated that he can't even put words to his feelings. God's anointed king ought to be experiencing peace and joy. Instead, he is groaning. Now, David's groans reminds me of the inward groanings of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, if you know anything about the What's going on in Romans chapter 8, it is, it is the fact that we start living in a falling world. We have all the promises of the Spirit, and yet there's just evil continually hitting us on a regular basis. And he says, that hurts. And the Spirit feels that. If there's anybody that groans about the world full, being full of evil, about there still being evil within our hearts, it's the Holy Spirit. Because he's the one to bring about all things new. And because we're not yet there, he's groaning. <clears throat> in a way that I don't have worked out in myself. But somehow, the spirit within us can groan and also give us peace and joy. I don't know how that works. David is groaning, and it is a good thing that God hears your groans. 
You can fall on tra traps of this one side or the other, but even before David can give words to his groans, God hears his groans. Now David does give words to his groans. He says in verse 2, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. And this is very important because there's only like five different psalms throughout the 150 psalms where the psalmist actually says, my king. And if you understand anything about the history of Israel having a king, they were yearning for a human king because they really didn't want God as their king. Give us a king like the nations who will give us blessing. And yet here in the psalm, the one whom God has set up as his king sees God as his king. Very important. David has been declared to be king, but he doesn't use that as, a, as an excuse to be independent of God or to become arrogant. He calls out to God as his king. Now, I don't want to go into all this today, but if you just look at the Psalms in terms of the relationship between the human king and the divine king, there's this beautiful uh, kind of back and forth uh, sometimes you think of the human king as just a human king. Sometimes he's kind of viewed as God as being king himself, like he's divine. And I don't think you really get that all worked out until you get to Jesus, who is both human and divine, working that out as our king. He is your human king. He is your divine king. Both of those are worked out. Verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now, David combines in his prayer the offering of a morning sacrifice. Now, I'm only bringing this up to you because he's living during a time before the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You and I do not combine our prayers with any sacrifice. Jesus Christ and his blood has been shed once for all time. So you don't, you don't have to bring an offering of blood in order to have God hear your prayers. Um, very important for us to understand. <clears throat> David prepares this prayer. I mean, he says the prayer, he prepares the sacrifice, and then he watches. What is he watching for? Well, David is looking for God to destroy evil, and particularly the evil men that oppose him. Why is he so confident that God will destroy these men? Well, the first answer is the character of God. I'm going to dwell on this a little bit, but verses 4 through 6. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, I would tell you that these are verses that are worth coming back to and meditating on. And you'll understand it uh, as I hopefully explain this to you. There's nothing that's been more destructive to theology and to the understanding of God and religion to think that God is okay with evil. 
We often do not understand why he has not yet destroyed evil, but we must never embrace the, the lie that God has somehow gone soft on evil. The psalmist doesn't go into this here, but I'm going to do this a little bit. As soon as you accept that this is God's stance towards evil and evil men, I hope everyone in this room has fear in their hearts about themselves. Because everyone here still has evil within their own hearts. Did a good job this morning on bringing this out, Nathan. If you take the time to honestly look at yourselves, we all have some level of degree of hatred of God's rule over us. We'd rather he just left us alone. And as much as we are willing to condemn the evil around us, our own conscience pricks us that evil still resides within our hearts. And there are times in the Psalms, I bring this up because I want you to know that there are often times in the Psalms where the psalmist seems to ignore the sin of his own heart. And Psalm 5 is one of them. Why? Why does the psalmist not always deal with his own sin? Well, this is, a, this is a very simple answer, but you need to hear it as you're dealing with the psalms. Each psalm is not a systematic theology. In other words, every psalm does not say everything about everything. Sometimes it just doesn't deal with an issue. David right here is expressing his honest emotions in the moment in which he finds himself. He is surrounded by evil men who are trying to destroy him. And so that's his focus. They are questioning his right to rule as king. And he knows that these men are truly rebelling against God and God must deal with them. David wants a strong reason to believe that God will indeed rise up and conquer his enemies. And that reason, that, that foundation is nothing less than the character of God that he has always abhorred evil. And it is the Lord's hatred of evil that will bring him to make an end of it. Evil cannot reign in God's kingdom. The question of how an evil person could be redeemed is not the, not the focus of this psalm. But let me just tell you that it is, the, it is the foundation of our redemption as well. Let me try to follow this through systematically. I'm going to do for you what the psalm doesn't do, but you need to hear it. Redemption is not God's changing his mind about the evil of your heart. Redemption is God applying his covenant love to his hatred of evil. A 
apart from God's absolute hatred of evil, there is no understanding of the cross. If God could tolerate you apart from the cross, then sending his son to die on the cross is the most heinous of all evils. If he could look at your sin and be okay with you, then why would he kill his own son? To free you from your sin. God's anger against the evil of who we are in ourselves was poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be forgiven. Remember that when we make much of God's love, and we should make much of God's love, that it is a holy love that abhors evil. And as much as David is confident that God's character will destroy all these other enemies, you, as God's children, should be confident that that same burning holy love will destroy the last remnants of evil within you. Only union with Jesus Christ guarantees the destruction of all evil in your heart. Hear me on this. You're sitting here today, even as redeemed Christians. If God all of a sudden just said, okay, it's up to Debbie Butler from here on out. Debbie, it's up to you to eradicate all your sin. I'm telling you, Debbie would be okay with destroying some of her sin. But she would not want to destroy all of her sin. You see, it is only Christ who is committed to destroying all of your sin. And that gives me confidence. Because even today, after being a Christian 40 years, there are parts of my sin that I still cling to tenaciously. So David is not writing a systematic treatise. He's not talking about everything to do with redemption. But he is giving you this one thing. God hates evil. And it cannot stand in his presence. And if you believe that you will one day stand in his presence, then you must also believe that he will eradicate all evil from your heart. And that's good news. Now David does do this in verse 7. He, he, he gives this little hint. He says, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. So he doesn't work out everything, but he says, oh man, if I'm going to enter into your presence, it's only going to be by steadfast love. This is hesed, this is covenant love. He says, I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Now, the... This is kind of an interesting statement that David says, I will bow down before your temple. Um, Because the temple hasn't even been built yet. And yet there's some sort of structure in which the Ark of the Covenant is kept. And yet David rests in the assurance that he will enter that temple. I would argue that 
It really is pointing to the heavenly temple. Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's also interesting, too, because the king wasn't allowed to go into the temple. And yet David says, I'm going to be drawn in. And again, I think that this is a picture of David is not only king, but he's a foreshadow of Christ. And Christ doesn't just lead kings into the temple. He leads all of his people into the temple. So. Now David is thinking about worship. He's thinking about being in God's temple. But then he kind of comes back to the reality that he's still got enemies all around him. And these enemies are not just kind of random enemies, like you get mugged going down the street. But there are people that are purposely plotting his destruction. And so in verse 8, he feels the need for guidance. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. All of their plotting, all of their scheming to see his downfall is like it's like a minefield around him, and you can't see the mines, but somehow he's depending on God's sovereignty to like orchestrate his way through the minefield so that he can get to the other side. And David is saying, I just need your help. I can't anticipate every scheming, plotting against me, but Lord, lead me in the way that I need to go. Verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. Now what's important here is to understand that David is not describing the, the uh, kind of the normal relations between people. David is describing how these enemies relate to God's appointed king. It's not that they lie in every situation. It's not that they're uh, not honest. Uh, it, it's, it's more that they're not honest about their rebellion to the Lord. And I want you to hear this. Every person in some way wants to throw off God's rule as king over them. But I'm telling you, it's a rarity when anyone admits it. Think about the Pharisees. Think about how they reacted to Jesus. While they were wanting to kill Jesus and were plotting to destroy him, they were claiming to love and submit to God. They hated Jesus because he was a threat to their power. They didn't want to submit to Jesus, and yet they claimed they wanted to submit to God. And I find this is interesting because when Paul wants to describe every human heart, part of what he uses, he uses a montage of different uh, verses, but in Romans 3, he actually uses Psalm 5. I'll read it to you. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And it goes on. The truth is that every person hates God's rule. And God has to overcome that. 
in order to redeem people. Now, I just there's a lot of levels that will help you with the Psalms if you understand this. If you read the Psalms and it just feels like, man, David just has tons of enemies. I was voted in high school as like most popular. Um, uh, so I'm voted that way because I just didn't make enemies. I wasn't the most popular in any one group, but all the groups, they, I got some votes from everywhere. So anyway, so the point is, I would read the Psalms and I'd say, man, they got enemies all around. And I'm like, I don't have that many enemies. But I'm not the king. You see, when David's got enemies all around, it's because he's king. And people don't want to submit to him as king. That's why he's got lots of enemies. Now, I get it that we as God's people will get enemies too because we're attached to the king. But just understand that David doesn't have an exorbitant amount of enemies because he's just a mean guy. It's because he's king. And people hate the rule of king over them. And David makes this clear in verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. See, David's kingship is appointed by God. And so when they fight against David, they're really fighting against God. And David understands this. And this is why David says they have to bear their guilt. We live in a world that continues to rebel against the Lord. We don't have an earthly king. There's no king in the church of which people can fight. But people continue to hate the rule of Jesus Christ. In my lifetime, I have watched the world's stance against Christianity completely flip. In my early years, it would have been a good thing to put on my resume that I was a member of a gospel-believing church. As I got older, it became a matter of indifference. Ah, who cares, one way or the other. Now, it is a mark, a stain upon you. You may not get a job because you profess allegiance to Christ. Will God re reverse this trend? Will he change it again? He has the power and the authority to do so. But my hope and your hope is not that he will do it immediately. Our hope is in the very character of God that he abhors evil and that he will eventually destroy all evil. He has to. Has to. And our hope is in the covenant promises that he has given to Jesus Christ and we in Jesus Christ. So that when he conquers all Jesus' enemies, we get the benefit of that. So you see again how judgment and destruction of evil are hand in hand with redemption. Verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And again, I will tell you, they can do this even while they're still groaning. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but they can. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as a shield. This is David's declaration of faith. This is him saying, okay, 
the situation around me has not changed. The enemies are still there. But I'm going to trust you because I know who you are and I trust your covenant promises to me. David knows that evil must lose. And you should too. It must lose because your God hates evil. And it must lose because God has promised to take every enemy and submit it to the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how strong the evil is around you, no matter if we go tomorrow and it gets worse, evil will lose. I know that the time of evil is short. And I know that that's a relative term because God promised it to David 3,000 years ago. And it's still going. So when you look at the evil today, and you think, oh, it must end. We got, he better come back quick because it's getting really bad for me. Happened, gotten bad before. It, he could come back before this sermon is over. But he might wait another 3,000 years. Doesn't change the fact that evil must lose. Now, that's true outwardly. It's true inwardly in your heart. You've trusted in Jesus Christ to cleanse you from all sin. And to make you into a pure, beautiful, submissive to Jesus Christ person. The one who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. But I'm telling you, you may have to, like the psalmist, live with the tension of groaning that your sin is not yet completely removed. And having the peace and joy that it will be completely taken away. It's hard to imagine a world where evil no longer exists. But that's what God has promised. And that is the world that Jesus died to give you. Jesus said that you will have tribulation, but take heart. He has already overcome the world. Amen.